typical of our congregation, which is always very generous, very open with their hearts, and it's a part of our core values to have generous hearts. Um, Typical of that, when a member of our congregation lost her husband um, very relatively unexpectedly, after a few weeks after he had passed and we'd had the services and done everything, she called and, and told us, and he had played drums professionally as a young man and had a set of drums, and she wanted us to be the heirs to that. She wanted to let us have that drum set as a, as, as a gift. What we didn't know at the time was that it was actually a, a relatively valuable drum set um, and an extremely classic. Um, like all musicians, certain musicians have certain errors and certain brands that were typical of a style. And this particular one's very popular amongst drummers. But it was older. Um, Andy came in and became a friend with us and Andy completely refurbished this set. It's absolutely beautiful. We keep it contained so that we can control how much of the drums gets into the house, which is a good thing. Um, But if you're ever up on the platform, just go by and take a look at it. Andy did an amazing job. I think I complimented you one other time, but it's it's such a neat story to me of how somebody loved their church and love their worship and would give a gift that came out of their sorrow, um, out of their grief, to the, that, that gift would become a part of our heritage and, and our legacy and what God's doing today. And then new friends would come in and help us make that possible. Because this is what God does. God takes that which is oftentimes unknown, that which is oftentimes not fully comprehended in terms of its value, and he begins to invest his love, he begins to invest his craftsmanship into those lives and makes them brand new and repurposes them for his use to keep touching lives and drawing people in. And so every time, every time we're in worship and every time I look up at the beautiful drum set, I'm always thankful for that lady for giving. I'm always thankful for Andy for being a part of making it beautiful and, and, and making it sound so phenomenal and so great. And we're so grateful for that and the transformation that it reminds me of. God wants to do every day in all of our hearts. Of the parables of Jesus, In Luke chapter 15, we find probably the most well-known and most popular parable, oftentimes referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. There's actually four parables in Luke chapter 15. We studied the first two. We studied the lost sheep and the, the immensity of God's love that goes and searches for it and then recovers, and all, of angel, all the angels of heaven rejoice in that recovery moment. We studied the parable of the lost coin, where the lady loses a part of her wedding dowry, so significant, so valuable, so sentimental, and yet does all she can to brush and clean and stir until she finds it. And again, the comparison to the lost souls of our world, all of heaven rejoices. And then Jesus shifted as he was telling his story to the story of two sons, and there's actually two parables. The first one is what we call the prodigal son, the son who takes his inheritance and leaves. There's a second and last fourth parable, and that is the son of the older son who never left, but never understood the father's heart. And we'll look at that one next week. 
We're going to look at the father the next two weeks. And he's, his response, his love and his compassion and his mercy and his grace to these two errant boys. In this fictitious story of Jesus with real truth-based principles, it's a great reminder to us of how much and how deeply and how significantly God loves us. Wherever, Wherever we find ourselves, a lamb that's gone astray, a coin that's been lost into the dust, a son that willfully and intentionally says, I've had enough, I'm out of here, I'm gone, I want to live my life the way I want to live my life, squander it. Or a son who never squandered anything, stay right at home, but never understood the depth of God's love. Wherever we find ourselves in these stories, the common denominator is God loves, God searches, and all of his heaven rejoices when we return, when we re-embrace him as our loving father. So I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on the son. I'll read the passage in Luke 15 for us. Well, so we hear the entirety of the story, but I'm mostly going to look at the dad and his response and that picture of how God responds to us in his love. So this particular story, this particular parable begins in verse 11. Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus is speaking and says, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate and foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then the fat and, then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It's an amazing story. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details about the son. The truth is, in any culture, 
The behavior of the son is appalling. I don't have to tell you. You sensed it as I read it. You sensed it as you read it yourself. You've sensed it when you've heard this story in the past. You've sensed it when you've looked at the famous artwork throughout the ages that describes this story of a son who demands his inheritance, which is legally acceptable in the ancient Near East at this point in time. He didn't do anything illegal. Morally, it's questionable. But he didn't do anything actually wrong. And he takes that which is eventually his that he's demanded in advance and goes off and literally squanders and abuses it. And we could go into details about the cultural things and how far he actually fed. But in any culture, ending up feeding pigs that are eating better than you are feels and seems appalling. It would be worse for a Jew if we were not, you know, but we understand. He's hit the very bottom. There is no further he can go in his degradation and his inappropriate lifestyle and his bad choices. He's, he has gone as far as he can. And his conclusion still doesn't understand the father. His conclusion is, my dad has a workforce. And my dad's workforce, my dad's employees are doing better than I am. They're eating better than I am. They make more than I'm making. I'm going to go back to my dad, the one person who might have some sense of responsibility to all the irresponsibleness of my life. And I'm going to ask him not to be his son any longer. I've disqualified that. But I'm going to ask him if he'll hire me. If he'll take me on bottom ladder as a part of his business. A son whose only option is to go back to the father and ask to be an employee. And that's his plan. That's the best he can come up with. He's exhausted all of his resources. He's exhausted all of his networks. There is no better option for him. And he begins the journey home. But the father is the one I want to look at. Maybe because it's a little painful to think about the son. Because I understand inappropriate behavior. I understand inexcusable decisions and actions. I understand what it means to be a sinner. And I am assuming the vast majority of us in this room and those online and those who will watch at a later time, I am assuming most of us know deep in our hearts what it means to make a decision that separates us from the people we love as well as the God that loves us. And I just want to, in the middle of summer, in the middle of the heat, at the end of July, remember what the Father's like. Now, it's going to be tough, and so I'm going to encourage note-takers, if you haven't already gone to the event section of the YouVersion app, you might want to do that. Pull up First Baptist Church Tomball and pull up the notes because we're going to walk through the actions of the Father. It's going to be fast, and there's going to be multiple, and I may not even catch every subtopic, but we'll walk through it in a chronological order, and all the notes are on there so you can find it, and you can find it and hold on to it and save it. It begins after these horrid actions of the son, the beautiful, loving, and caring actions of the father with what I'm simply calling in verse 20, motivated compassion. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. 
We understand that kind of motivated compassion because maybe we've seen it in other relationships. But deep in our hearts, we know how difficult this would be. The son has prematurely taken everything. We don't know, we can't tell if what has been left for the father jeopardized his well-being in any way, but the sheer hurt of being abandoned, whether you took anything or not, is painful and grievous to a parent that's beyond description. And yet, instead of in his house, instead of managing his estate, we find the father eagerly looking for the son. We find him watching the distant horizon, waiting It's a motivated compassion. It's not a compassion that happens in the moment. It's not a compassion that's impulsive. It is a compassion that is strategic and deep and moving and active. He's looking. He's waiting. How many times in our lives have we made decisions that we knew were offensive to God And yet, when we regathered ourselves and reconsidered that, we've only found out that the entire time we thought we were away and we were gone and we were unobserved or maybe even forgotten, that God was watching constantly. He never left. He stood vigil. The only thing he wanted back was his son. And the only thing God wants back is you and me. It's not casual compassion. It's not momentary compassion. It's not environmentally induced compassion. It is motivated and strong. The father is watching and he's waiting. His love compels him to keep his eye on the horizon, hoping. I think of that verse in the book of Revelation where Jesus describes the desire to be with us as him knocking on the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and I will dine with him and be with her. Anyone. God hasn't forgotten any of us. He's watching for all of us And he's waiting and he's hoping that we will stop and turn and come towards him and respond to an invitation to know his compassion. And then Jesus makes it so obvious in this story because now the father sees the son and we have this demonstrative affection. There's no hesitation here. There's no coy, let me have my personal space. He runs in verse 20. He throws his arms around his neck And he kisses him. There's no cold shoulder. Yeah, you did things wrong and I'm going to make sure you remember it for a few days. There's no, well, okay, you did all that. What are you willing to do? What are you willing to pay? What are you willing to suffer to come back into my good graces? The dad just doesn't care. He runs and he throws his arms around him and he begins to kiss him yes that's an ancient mid-east form of greeting 
but the picture that Jesus paints is of a father who is so excited to see his returning son that all inhibitions are lost. However you want to reconfigure that into your cultural expectations of greetings, make it the most enthusiastic and most excited and most vulnerable and transparent. At this point, the dad doesn't even know why he's returning. There's no indication in Jesus' story that there's any kind of preemptive announcement or awareness. The dad sees because he's been watching. The dad runs because he's been waiting. The dad embraces because he loves. You and I feel guilty about our sin, and we're hesitant to, to confess it. But the reality is, in Scripture, confession of sin is one of the healthiest, most loving moments a Christian ever experiences. He's waiting, and he wants to embrace, and he wants to love. All the things we built up and we put into the structures and into the insulation of our spiritual being that said, I don't know, I'm not sure, is it really true, is it really God? All of that's washed away in this moment. The son's not asking questions about how long it's been since creation. The son's not asking questions about where God was in difficult times. The son's not asking reasons, uh, understatements or, or understanding about how the church is hypocritical. The son doesn't care about any of that. The father doesn't care about any of it. All the father cares about is his son's there and he's gonna hug him and he's gonna kiss him and he's gonna welcome him. We're the ones that build the obstacles between us and God. Never God, never. He just wants to know us. He just wants to be with us. That affection and that, at that moment of compassion coming to fruition, the father interrupts. We have this speech twice in the passage of scripture. In the first passage, he talks about how he's gonna say to his father, he's rehearsed it, he's memorized it, he's ready to say it, hey father, I know I've sinned. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned in your sight. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And here comes the closing application of the plea from the son. I will tell him in that moment, Father, I just want to be one of your, if you would consider hiring me. But in verses 21 and 22, there's this kind of merciful interruption. He never gets to the application. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And, and here's, the, here's the moment when he begins to ask for the job. But the father tells his servants, quick. The son doesn't need to ask for a job because love was preexistent to this moment. And love had not changed The son's actions had separated them, but the depth of the father's love had never changed during the separation. There was nothing that he could have done or did to that was so drastic that the father wouldn't keep loving. And the father wasn't interested in hearing about how his son wanted a job. He was ready to party. He was ready to celebrate. So he interrupts the son, and then he brings out the honor. Verse 22, bring out the best robe and put it on him. That symbol in their culture of authority, that's that symbol of recognition, it's a symbol of status. In fact, all these actions that take place right here are all, act, all actions that give status, give worth, give meaning. Put 
a robe on him. Does he deserve it? No, we know that. We already got, we got that figured out. We know the son because we are the son. And if we're not this son, we're the other son and we get to learn about that next week and to see the father's reaction to the second prodigal son. Put a robe on him. Honor him. Give him worth. What you're seeing in this moment is something you will not see. You'll not find it on TikTok. You'll not find it in the news. You'll not find it in your neighborhood. And oftentimes you won't even find it in a church. Because we think in terms of worthiness. Have you earned this? And the father says, I don't care. I already know you didn't earn it. I just love you so much. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to give you value. I'm going to give you self-worth because of my love. He delegates authority to him, put the ring on his finger. Again, in that culture, is a symbol. It's essentially handing him the checkbook and saying, look, I'm going to put you in charge of the finances. Not the most strategic business move in this particular case, but an unbelievable move of compassion and love and generosity. Put the ring on his finger. He's in control of the estate. The estate that he attempted to obliterate because of his recklessness. Status. It's hard for us to picture this, but in that culture, the hired help didn't wear shoes. You were a member of the family if you wore shoes. And the father says, put sandals on his feet. No, I'm not taking him back as an employee. I'm taking him back as the son that I love and I care for. Then this extravagant celebration. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast. I, I love the way in Luke chapter 15, God makes the story of our rescue a public event. I doubt the son felt like a party at the moment. He had had every imaginable party over the last several years in Jesus' story. Because it's a fictional story, this son doesn't exist. This father on earth doesn't exist. Because it's a picture of the father in heaven and it's a picture of us. It probably doesn't feel much like partying. I'm not sure the rest of the crowd, and we'll see that in the other son next week, I'm not sure they feel like partying. But the dad does. The dad, I mean, this is, this is where the ancient Near East meets West Texas. The dad says, hey, my son's back. We're having barbecue today. We're having barbecue. Get the best and choicest piece of meat and talk about fresh. We're going to kill it, slaughter it right here. We're going to dress it out and we're going to start cooking right now. Which means this party is not a short party. This party is not just a handshake after a service. This party is an ongoing experience of God's love. I remember when I became a Christian, and probably some of you do as well, people saying, well, you know, I'm going to miss out on so much because, you know, religion's going to cramp my lifestyle so much. I honestly don't remember a single point in my life that I ever experienced the depth of joy or just flat out happiness ever, any time prior to Christ that I experienced after Christ. I didn't understand it in the beginning. 
Because God lives in us. His Holy Spirit's living in us. And it didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand it. But every moment since I've become a Christian, I experience happiness and joy that is unexplainable. And it's sustaining. I'm still here. It, it amazes me how we can get together as Christians and we don't have anything to stimulate us. At best, a cappuccino. And yet, we will laugh and we will make noise and the rest of the restaurant will be looking at us like, what's wrong with those guys? When you know Jesus, when the Father has wrapped his arms around you and said, I love you, I care for you, oh, by the way, you're going to be my son, and I'm going to honor you in a way, and I'm going to give you worth, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you worth and value you've never experienced. I'm going, to, I'm going to take you in, and we're going to work together in this, this enterprise of mine. It's just fun. I've done some strange things over the years as a pastor, but one of the strangest was in the, the church early on, real early on, and uh, we decided we wanted to just celebrate God's love kind of in this way. And so we filled the worship center with all kinds of balloons and streamers, and, and uh, we found these big, huge door-sized banners at the local party store that said, the party is here. We had a few members come up that Sunday, think, and we put them on the front doors, had a few members come up and like, I'm not so sure about this. The advantage I had back then, I was young, and they just blamed it on that. They just said, oh, he's just young. He doesn't know better. <laughs> he doesn't know how to be reverent. I don't know what you all say now because I'm not young anymore and I still haven't learned to be reverent. God loved me and changed my life and I don't care what you want to do, but I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm going to celebrate. And I'm going to rejoice. The father said, look, take the best calf we have. Butcher it and prepare it. We're having barbecue this afternoon. And then he declares it so that there's no misunderstanding what's taking place. Because this son of mine was dead. And is alive again. He was lost. And now he's found they began to celebrate. God has declared life over us. And now it's time to celebrate. And you don't want to listen to me sing, so I'm going to invite Sydney to come back up. And we're just going to sing. We're going to sing a great song that talks about the love of God. And I want more than anything else today just for us and our hearts to pause for a moment and push aside all the junk we've dealt with all week long and just realize God loves us this much. And for some of us, pushing that aside means that maybe we're making a decision for the first time today to embrace God back. There's nothing worse than an unrequited hug. You go to hug somebody and they don't want to hug. Don't do that to God before you walk out of here today. He loves you. He wants to embrace you. He wants to know you. He wants to live with you. He wants to forgive it. So stop coming up with all the excuses why you can't or how you, how you can't because everyone qualifies. He wants to love you in this moment. And maybe for the first time you're saying, 
okay, I'm going to believe Jesus and I'm going to trust Jesus. I don't even, you don't even have to fully know what's going to play out. Today's just the homecoming. Today's just the celebration. We'll help you and your friends will help you figure out the rest of it going forward. This is that first moment when you say, I'm willing to accept God's love. I'm willing to trust him and be a part of my life. Maybe for some of us, it's just a good reminder. Because the truth is, all the junk that weighed us down before we were a Christian keeps coming back and keeps fighting and keeps struggling with it. We keep struggling with it. And every once in a while, those of us who have been believers for a long period of time and have a long established relationship with God, we just need to stop for just a moment and remember, this is why I trusted everything to Jesus. This is why I sought out his love and his compassion. It's no different than the relationships we have. Just sometimes you have to remind one another we love one another. And sometimes there's nothing wrong with just pausing and saying, you know what, I've been about God's business day in and day out, but I just forgot how much he loves me. Today I'm gonna push it all aside and just remember one simple truth that changed my life. God loves me. And Jesus gave his life so I could be home and celebrating with him. So maybe it's a reminder. Whatever it is, whatever your decision is, embrace it in this moment. And always, in any way, if we can help, we want to. Just let us know. God loves you this much.